Cool. Okay. Hello, and welcome back to the Time Zone Collective. This month we'll be discussing Murder of the Orient Express by Agatha Christie from mm-hmm. the 1930s. Dame Agatha Christie. Sorry. Dame Agatha Christie. One of the few women that we've actually read this year. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to be better at that next year. <laughs> so if anyone is doing the um, guess along with us in December for our advent calendar of December that we did last year, there will be more women this year. So that's that's your one hint that you're going to get beforehand. I hope you do Margaret Atwood because I feel like in this climate, she is a perfect person to... I agree. Introduced to the world. I love Not that she needs the introduction. So we'll see. What a legend. She is a legend. She we'll really see. is. She is. She lives in the middle of the woods. Of course she does. I would expect nothing less from her. <laughs> no. I, it makes complete sense. It really does. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, this is our last normal episode. And we are finally, finally joined by our very, very good friend, Jenny! Jenny! Because it's about a year ago now that we asked you to do this. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a really long time coming. Because you guys, my copy of this book, you guys bought for me for Christmas last year. And we exchanged the gifts. We did. In early December. So it is almost exactly a month since I got this book as well. Editing Amelia here. I'm an idiot. I meant a year. Which everyone who's seen our post on Instagram Mm -hmm. will know is... Gorgeous. It's so pretty. I love it so much. It is. It is gorgeous. Yeah. We this is our second slightly tipsy episode of Time Ten Collective. Well, tipsy on mine and Jenny's parts, Laura yes. is tipsy on green tea. <laughs> Always gets me going. <laughs> Whatever. Who knows what leaves are in here? <laughs> yeah, she said it was green tea, but We don't know. Still we green. can't prove anything. Yeah. Can neither confirm nor deny that it's <laughs> the greenness of the tea. <laughs> I'm drinking Prosecco from a very fancy gin glass that's like crystal art deco ish that my mum bought me for my birthday. Um, yes. What are you having, Jenny? I have homemade mulled wine in a handmade. It's a coffee cup, but it is just a cup for everything because I have my tea and my coffee and everything in. It's very you. Cheers to. <laughs> Using the wrong utensils for cheers. the right drinks. Cheers. <laughs> Wait, Virtual cheers. Wow. Just... There we go. Yeah, okay, Laura. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> they won't know. <laughs> Introductions for Jenny. I genuinely think you were probably one of the first people we asked to be on, but we never realised how long it would actually take till we record this. <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna have to do the same thing this year, aren't we? Yeah, for, like asking people for next this time next year, which is wild. Ooh. The suspense. Yeah, I'm really excited though because I've wanted to read Agatha Christie for so long that Me too. Yeah, same. when you asked, I was like, yes, of course, I'm there. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I see myself there right now. <laughs> Another queen. <laughs> but we have questions for you. We do. Okay. First of all, what do you study? I do classical studies. Ooh, we're changing it up yeah. slightly. Well, I am not actually... The only people not doing English. <laughs> well, I'm technically doing... I don't know if it will come out as a minor in English because I'm taking two half courses in English this year. But yes. I, 
it's classics, really. I just chose English because, well, I'm doing queer studies and I, you know. Just fun. Just fun <laughs> yeah. times. I just wanted to... Doing it for the girls and the gays. I just wanted to open myself up to different perspectives on literature. Because I think that's important yeah. as I go further on into my life. Yeah. Yeah. We agree. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, well, I agree. <laughs> we all know I'm homophobic. <laughs> Of course you are, yes. Massively. <laughs> this is going to be held against you when one day you're trying to get a job and they're like, well, we found something here. <laughs> you're like, no, it was a joke, I promise. Like, that's what they all say. <laughs> they think it's a joke. They all think it's a joke, but in fact, we uh-huh. all know. I think maybe the Prosecco's here. <laughs> Oops. Oh, next question, next question. What's our next question? What's your favourite spice? Oh. And or herb. Garlic doesn't count. And or herb. Well, I... I'm going to do what Katie did. I'm going to give one of each. Um, okay. I, My favourite herb at the moment is sage. It yeah. does vary based on the seasons because I love basil in the summer because tomatoes and basil I'm an elite combination. Yeah, agreed. Um, mm-hmm. But... Butternut squash and sage is another oh, yes. combination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, with butter that's beans. That's like autumnal winter. Yeah, yes, I'm, I'm completely I'm there. Mm-hmm. But the spice that I think I'm liking the most at the moment is cinnamon, purely because again autumnal. I've started having porridge again, which is very unusual for me. I saw. Oh, that looked that looked a bit sexy. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. But I've just been putting cinnamon in everything, like just sprinkling on everything. All the people listening go follow jenny on her instagram peaches and greens it's a delight we'll we'll tag it on on different posts thank you very much on everything <laughs> on everything, on everything. Have a look. it's it's it will make you want to eat Just, yeah yeah i mean <laughs> it'll make you want to eat lovely nice healthy and tasty vegan, and vegan food. yeah yeah lots of greens my my thing at the moment is trying to incorporate greens into every single meal whether that's kale in a smoothie or, I mean, yeah. I mean just kale. Just kale in everything. Kale. <laughs> kale, I agree. More questions. Favourite book? Oh, God. I should have thought about this before, shouldn't I? Yeah, you knew this was coming. <sighs> yeah. Okay, so... She had it coming. <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> My favourite book? That's so difficult. Well, like a current favourite current favorite okay i have been reading a lot of short stories recently both for english and for my dissertation in classics so two short stories that i'm really enjoying at the moment because i have to keep revisiting them anyway for class because i'm writing essays on them Mm -hmm. um madeline miller does a short story called galatea which is based on the pygmalion myth that is in ovid's metamorphoses and it's very good it's a complete flipped version of the tale basically it's from her perspective the statue's perspective it's very good and it's only about 25 30 pages really quick read very interesting um and the second one is something i think everyone who has studied the royal holloway um queering world literature course has read is jumping monkey hill um by chimamanda ngozi adichie and it's i heard about Adichie about two years ago when I bought her 
transcript of one of her talks she did for a TED talk called mm-hmm. Why We Should Be Feminist. Yes, oh, I have read yeah. that short and... story. So it was like a short manifesto almost, isn't it? Yeah, it's originally a talk, but it just was um, transcribed. It's been transcribed yeah. so people can read it instead. And that's how I first... I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. That's how I first... Out? Yeah. Discovered. Yeah. Absorbed it, I, I suppose. But I've also got a one of her books called Americana, which I've been wanting to read oh, for a couple right, of years. Yeah. But I just which haven't got around to it yet. Which is one that we've looked at, considered. Mm. Haven't, I'm neither going to say whether we chose it or not. We did consider it for um, next year. Next year. Yeah, it's I'm supposed sorry, to be <laughs> very, very good. So once I've read it, I will let you know. Amelia's going on an adventure towards the bin. <laughs> And she's back. <laughs> I believe those are all the questions. Have I missed oh, one? Hogwarts house. What's oh, your... watch your Hogwarts house. Right. I think I'm Ravenclaw. Really? Representation. Yeah. I'm either Ravenclaw or Hufflepuff. But I've got a feeling that the first time I did it, I was Hufflepuff. And the second time, I was Ravenclaw. Yeah. So I will say Ravenclaw. Nice. answer. Like me. I'm Ravenclaw. Like many people. But yeah, secondary. I'm a house of Hufflepuff. Because... It's nice to be nice to people. Yeah. It is nice to be nice to people, yeah, and I really do stand by that. Mm-hmm. I think, as well, it's it, that's just funny that we're both the same house, because of everything we've been discussing recently, our co-stars say we're entirely compatible. Yeah, Jenny is the only person on my co-star for whom our... You know how it it tells you your yeah. compatibility, oh, and it's I got remember. the happy face, the yeah. medium face, and the sad face. We have no medium or sad faces. We're all happy faces. <laughs> Every single planet in our chart is compatible. So we, we've just decided we're the same person. Sorry, um, I've been yeah. removed. <laughs> <laughs> Ever call me Laura today? See? Oh God! I know. I did note it. Which means technically it, we are also you. compatible. Because we are one. Yes, I <laughs> suppose so. I suppose so. <laughs> I just want Keep to be included. <laughs> you may look the same, but mine and Amelia, we just, you know, connect on that spiritual level. Just brings me back to some <laughs> youth traumas. I've always been the, the third one. We're like, yeah, we're best friends, but you're not a bosom friend. <laughs> like, that hurts more. I think there's always, like, in friend groups, I feel like I'm the one that unites the two other friends and makes them friends. So I'm like the one that brings... Well, in this case, it was Jenny. In this case, it was Jenny, yeah. It so was. I would You're say welcome. You are the exception that proves the rule. Oh, yeah, that's an old but thing. We met because of Jenny. We did, yeah. That is true, yes, that's true. But then also, similarly, if you're like that, then surely I'm like that. Just proving the point even further. If you're the yeah. bridge, so am I. Yeah. We are We're all bridges here. <laughs> We're all bridges to our own destiny. Let's go, bridges. <laughs> I'm sure the people who are listening are really interested in how we <laughs> became friends. <laughs> it's been 12 minutes and we haven't even mentioned the book, basically. Shall we do context? Now we've done Jenny's context. My context. And our context. <laughs> Sorry. That's knowing okay. each other. I just like flicked Laura in the knee. That's fine. So, Jenny, what's your life story, huh? <laughs> well. Picture it, 19th of March, 99. Litchfield Hospital. (laughs) Yeah, it was. It shortly got knocked down, actually, after I was born. Oh, see, well, they couldn't handle it anymore. They were like, well, we've had the best. (laughs) Yeah, they were like, no! That's another reason that me and Jenny relate on a spiritual level. It's the Midlands in us. 
Exactly, yeah. Well, like, well, Birmingham is exactly the same height as my... Yeah. Well, it's I'm not a Midlander by birth. I am a Midlander in spirit. <laughs> by right. Yeah, by... <laughs> by choice. <laughs> I yeah, don't know why you'd want to by choice, adopted but... home place. Uh-huh. <laughs> which is as valid. I think so. We don't mind. You can claim it as your home. I'm more of a Midlander than Northerner, let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I spent my formative years there. Shall we talk about context? Yes. So it's the 1930s. It's pre-war. Yeah. Or post, depending on mm-hmm. your perspectives. Pre-Second World War. Yeah. So we're very much Art Deco. We're living the high life on the Orient Express. But there's definitely the tensions between, like... In Germany. Like, communist yeah. powers... So, and like English powers, which I feel like is quite relevant mm-hmm. in the the how they the distrust of each other in the novel through where people come from and just discrimination yes. throughout which yeah. I feel like that's like a lot of stereotypes are being And Russia, which yeah. also comes through in the novel with Princess Dragomirov, who's from Russia, was born in Russia as a princess, but obviously now has to live outside Russia because of communism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, Agatha Christie. We, what do we know about Agatha Christie? Dame, <laughs> Dame Agatha Christie. I feel like everyone just knows her from the Poirot books. Yeah, that she's train. just like fitting. That's train. We have to wait a second. Train. There's some people not wearing masks. Oh. That is the murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Not wearing a mask. <laughs> on the Reading to London There's line, a whole yeah. other kind of context coming into play here. <laughs> yeah. How relevant literature of the past is, you know? Yeah, Life true. imitates art. <laughs> but yeah, we know her from her detective novels. We do. I generally couldn't name any of anything else she's done. No. So she actually wrote a couple of plays as well oh. and she wrote a couple of romance novels which she published under a different name as to not be connected to her mary westmacher yes that one i'm reading that of wikipedia very nice what was the um there's a really popular play what was one of the plays the mouse trap yes the oh, mouse trap i've heard of that yeah. yes which reminds me of, did any of you play Mousetrap, the board game? Yes. Of course. That's one of my favourites. We should try and find Mousetrap and play Mousetrap. <gasps> that is yeah. a really because good one. Because it's such, that, that was my favourite board game as a kid. Like, screw Scrabble and Monopoly. We played Monopoly the other day. Anna oh, decided yes. to quit the game as she was winning. As I was literally about to smash everyone because I had all of the greens and one of the blues. And the other blue was still in play. So I was ready to go. I'm not bitter. <laughs> she is but yeah we should play Mousetrap anyway back to Agatha Christie <laughs> yeah also I think the reason that I love Agatha Christie is the fact that her second husband was an archaeologist Ooh, and the context apparently of her writing this book was that she was there's two places that she's said to have written this book one mm-hmm. of them was in Istanbul and the other I can't remember but it's based oh, on her own experiences, wasn't it? Of it was, yeah. Being on the Orient Express in bad weather. Mm. Oh, she disappeared. Yes, she did in she 1926. Did. Yes. Yeah. Did she want people to go looking for her with like a detective? I 
she well she said that she had amnesia didn't she because it was after her first husband was like i'm in love with someone else and she signed into a hotel with the name of his new lover oh that's so cool but she doesn't remember any of it for 11 days she has no memory or has sorry Oh. oh, she said that she has no money. Yeah, she yeah, said. she might just create, like, a mystery around her own life. Like, how cool is that? I mean, not cool, kind of worrying. But also cool but, that yeah. in her unconscious mind, she was able to go to London, she was able to function and do all these things. It's just... Wow. She's such a great woman as well, because she's, like, a powerful... She was born in 1890, so she's like a late Victorian mm. lady. She lived until she was 85, um, I just read. So, but we all, I'm not, I mean, I'm sure I'm talking about myself and about a lot of other people listening and you guys. She, we, we associate murder mysteries with Agatha Christie. Like, I couldn't name another yeah, 100%. mystery writer who's as famous as Agatha Christie. Yeah. Unless you count, yeah. like, Sherlock books. Yeah, yeah, Which are like, Doyle yeah. and Agatha Christie. I would say are on a par, fame wise. Yeah. But I kind of see yeah. Sherlock Holmes as their own thing, in a way. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I suppose they're completely separate. Sherlock Holmes is, I guess, a lot more about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the focus, it's not the other people. Whereas Poirot is obviously a very important part in these novels. He is analysing other people and focusing on other people. It's definitely more about the the actual Yeah, the actual crime. Yeah. Of it. yeah, and I think it's more about the stories that Agatha Christie wrote than Poirot himself. I think Sherlock Holmes has become his own thing outside of what Arthur Conan Doyle wrote, whereas Poirot is still intrinsically linked with the novels of Agatha Christie, even up until and to the point of the film that came out in 2017 with Kenneth Branagh, Sir Kenneth Branagh, sorry, and the one that's supposed to come out this month that I think has been pushed back to next year, which is the, his new adaptation of Death on the Nile, which is following on from his adaptation Ooh. of Murder on the Orient Express in 2017. And even if we think about, like, Knives Out, which came out last year, yeah. that's clearly inspired mm. by Christie. Oh, yeah, 100%, um, yeah. You can see the very similar themes there as well. Yeah, and that's... It's definitely taken inspiration from her and then twisted it to be less. Because obviously we all know the structure of an Agatha Christie novel now. We know it's like the... Mm. you There's like a build-up and then there's a murder or a crime and then there's the clues and then he starts to solve it and then he presents them with the thing at the end. And Knives Out kind of takes that and quite clearly sort of takes the bits from it that it wants and then sort of turns it upside down every other plot point is turned upside down so that it's unrecognisable, yeah. but it's yeah. still recognisable as inspired by Agatha Christie. If yeah. that makes sense. Mm. I'm sure there's a better way I could have put that. but I feel like it has a similar... For the reader, you get a very similar thought process whilst watching Knives Out to reading or watching an Agatha Christie plot. Mm-hmm. Because you think you kind of know what's happening, and then all of a sudden you don't have a clue. And then someone says something and you start thinking, wait, maybe it's this instead. And then at the very end, you realise that, that, yes, this thing is important. Yeah. But it's nothing like how you imagined it would be. Yeah, the smallest so details. So I, I will come to this. Yeah, I'll come to this in one of my points that I'm going to make. And it will make a lot more sense. Like the grease on, like, the passport and, like... 
small yeah. things like that. Like I knew it was going to be important. Yeah, but, and the yeah. clues like but you just the, don't know how. What yeah. the things that are dropped in the carriage with the the pipe cleaner and the handkerchief and things like that, and the mm. note that isn't entirely burnt, that sort of thing. I often think as well. Do you think? What do you think came first, Agatha Christie's novels or Cluedo? I'm sure the novels came first, didn't they? Well, they are very old, yeah. I'm sure, but I think it must be around a similar time. I feel like Cluedo probably... I think she was writing from the 20s, and then I reckon Cluedo probably came out in, like, the 30s. Yeah. I think. But I think around that time, there was a... Because of post-war and spice and stuff, there was a interest in things like that anyway. 1943, Cluedo. Yeah. So uh, this 20 years Cluedo after came out after. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is so... Like, when I was reading the book... And there was all these um, different bits of information being told to us. All of a sudden, I was thinking it was this character in this room with this weapon. Yeah. Yeah. And I was Everything like, am I, su- am I supposed to be thinking that? Is that but kind then, of... Well, also, the timestamps, instead of, like, the room... Because, like, the room was clear, but then the timestamps kept changing. Like, when, when was the murder? Yeah. The, the watch and... Yeah. That really threw me off. Because I thought I knew what was happening, and then they were like, oh, wait, no, but the watch must be wrong, someone must have changed it, and I was like, oh, for God's sake, of course. Yeah. Of course had that's what happened. Had you seen the film before reading it? No. I read the book first. I personally loved it. I love a murder mystery. I remember watching Nancy Drew as a kid and then I made my dad buy me the Nancy Drew game and ever since then I've loved murder mysteries. So I was thrilled that I got to read this book because I wanted to for so long and it did not disappoint. Yeah. I had seen the 2017 adaptation sort of around the time it came out. I think it was when it was started to be on, like, streaming services and things. I, don't, I didn't see it in the cinema, although it would have been yeah. great to see it in the cinema. Yeah. Um, and I, so I knew how it was going to end when I read the book, but I hadn't seen it in a long time, so I couldn't remember all of the plot points. Yeah, I had the same experience. And I really enjoyed reading this. For me, I had a similar thing with Murder Mysteries that got me into it, but it was actually my year six teacher read us Arthur Conan Doyle, The Speckled Band, out loud because we had like reading weeks or like we had I think it was after lunchtime once a week she would like read aloud to us for a while so we did Louis Sackar Holes and we did Arthur Conan Doyle's Speckled Band in that year and that was what got me into Murder Mysteries because I loved that so much and so reading this was a similar experience to that I think for me yeah for yeah. me, I had the same experience. Like, I watched the film around the time it came out, the 2017 mm-hmm. one. And, like, I didn't remember the, the details, like the handkerchief and stuff like that. That I didn't remember all of that. In yeah. the, like, I knew how it was going to end, but the small, like, how it came together, which I feel like is more important than the actual solution. Yeah. Almost like, I feel like the detailing yeah. of the story is much more important. Because it tells you about the characters as well, because yeah. they 
a lot of the clues are on purpose. The ones that they left were there purposefully, yeah. like the handkerchief and things, to throw Pirate off or whoever was going to try and solve the murder off. Yeah, no, for me, it started, like, me loving murder movies. I think it started when I was, like, six, and uh, after school, they had Cluedo there, mm. and I obsessively played Cluedo from age six till probably age, like, 14, like, I daily. I have I'm Harry talking, Potter like, Cluedo. multiple games that a day. That doesn't surprise wow. me. For some reason, that yeah. just fits you so well. I don't know why. I had I'm such like, yeah, a problem with board games in general, but specifically Cluedo. Like, if my parents are listening to this or my sister, they will vouch for this. Mm. Like, there was just, yeah, intensity this behind the Cluedo obsession. Yeah, I do, I do like it. This is definitely the same girl who watched... Which Harry Potter film was it? Just The Philosopher's Stone every, every morning, morning from, like, year. age... Like, I think I was, like, 14 or 15 around that time one school every morning as like my put my alarm before and just had like a comforting morning watching Harry Potter in my time so I could wake up of course of course you did (laughs) it just makes so much sense yeah shape me as a person (laughs) it does make sense and that's what we call an obsessive personality (laughs) right (laughs) yeah anyway so yeah I enjoyed it the writing style was I felt like it was harder to follow than because I feel like the film makes it so, or the films make it a lot clearer what's going on. I... Because there are so many details going on at the same time. I had trouble remembering who was who mm. and like what related to what person. I found it easier when I looked up. I think it's similar to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Tinker mm. Tailor Soldier Spy when we read that and how the names were all quite confusing. Yeah. When I looked up the actor who played it in the 2017 version, because I vaguely remembered who played who. Mm-hmm. When I looked up the actor who played the character, it made more sense to me and I was able to keep it clearer in my head. But I do think that the book was quite good. I liked how it sort of guided you through his thought process yeah. without revealing who did it. Whereas I think I haven't completely finished watching the 1974 version. I was watching that before mm. we did that. I think I'm, I, they were, he was just sort of explaining the conclusion he came to, I think it, I was near the end. Yeah. But I didn't like how that sort of signposted what was happening. So in that adaptation, I felt like throughout the whole thing, he knew what, what like, who had done it. I felt like I was missing something that he knew. Like, me as the audience, there was, like, a disconnect between yeah. Poirot as a protagonist and me as the audience watching it, um, which I didn't find with the... Kenneth Branagh version really or with the book I feel like I have like I did I did feel like that with the book I agree with you on that point but for me the films it was the other way around in the Kenneth Branagh one I feel like they focus too much on making it I think it's a better film Mm -hmm. but I think that the 1974 one is a better adaptation Um, I disagree I haven't seen both I've only seen the 1974 one yeah but I think the big thing for me was Poirot, the guy who played Poirot, yeah. was, he portrayed him as being quite angry and outright with everything that he was saying or thinking, mm. whereas I think there needed to be a little bit more complexity, because the character in the book, for me, is very complex. He doesn't let on when he knows certain things, and that wasn't really shown in the film. 
I think if you watch the Kenneth Branagh version, you'll kind of find the Poirot you're looking for because I felt the same mm. way. As I was watching it, I made some notes as I normally do. I said that I found him really annoying, basically. I yeah. wrote that he is like, this is a very specific reference and I don't know if either of you will get it, but hopefully at least one of the people listening to this will <laughs> understand my reference. He's like the toy Santa in the Santa Claus 2. It's that level of, like, it's the annoying voice. So Tim Allen plays Santa mm. in the Santa Claus yeah. and the Santa Claus 2 and the Santa Claus 3. But in the Santa Claus 2, he's replaced by Tim Allen playing a plastic toy Santa while the normal Santa goes and finds Mrs. Claus. And that toy Santa is so abrasive and irritating and the way he, like, smiles and laughs just absolutely is, like, spine-chilling how much I hate it. Yeah. And I felt the same yeah, way yeah, about Poirot in the 1974 version. I also found him really patronising, especially to the women, particularly yes. to the Swedish Mrs. Olsen. Is that her name? Miss Olsen. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. religious lady. The Swedish religious lady. I found him really annoying to her. And, um... I felt like they were telling you what was happening and showing you what was happening instead of just implying it like it is in the book and in the other adaptation. Mm-hmm. That, 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 them's my thoughts on the 1974. I think, okay, I've got two points to say in response. Firstly, I think the dynamic with the Swedish lady was built up in the mm. wrong way. Because in the book, there is still that, like, dynamic of not patronising, but there's a line, isn't there, that says, like, don't trouble her, she's a Swede or something, or, like, she doesn't understand she's a Swede, or... Because she's one of the few who doesn't speak the same language. Because I think he either talks to them in French... Yeah, or English. German or English. Yeah, Yeah, and he talks to her in German, because... Okay. But probably most audience in... Because that's Ingrid Bergman. Mm-hmm. Who is actually yeah. known to be like in Casablanca? One of, yeah, yeah. like one of the greatest actresses yeah. ever. And I think that that would be like as a way of her being the undercover actress with like the well known voice, but also being partly German. Mm-hmm. I think that was really well done. Do you think? Yeah. Okay. I think that the 1974 one follows the book more closely. I do see that. I think it follows the book more closely, but I think the characterisation is off. Yeah, I think... But then in the book, I didn't feel like the characters were as strong themselves. I Mm. think Poirot was really strong, but I think most of the characters in the book were a lot less dramatic than they are portrayed in the 2017 one, which is why I think the 2017 was a lot better film. Like, it just moves quicker. It just is a lot better made. But I do think that the other one is... I know, I feel I feel like it's true to the story. I need to watch the 2017 one, because... Do you want to mm. watch the trailer, maybe? So Could you do. can see the actors who play it, who play the different characters. And then you can kind of see him as Poirot. Should we do that now? Yeah. We're just going to pause the recording, and Jenny's going to watch the trailer, and then we're going to come back Yeah. talk about it. Okay. Okay. Boom. We're back back. <laughs> So Jenny, what did you think of the trailer? The trailer made me really want to watch it. There was one character, mm-hmm. the um, you know, do you know who it was played by? No, the <laughs> the American Duchess. 
Who is who is actually oh. the actress? Lynn Daisy Ridley. No, Linda. Oh, yeah, Linda yeah, Arden. Yes. Oh, um, Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, okay. Yeah. She's a great. Yeah, she's a great Mrs. Hubbard. Oh, Mrs. Hubbard. That's the one. Yeah. 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 yeah I from that trailer, I didn't get the franticness that I liked in the nineteen seventy three version, but perhaps in the film she's different. I think in the nineteen seventy three version, what they kind of the nineteen seventy four version, sorry, what they kind of miss is her talking about her daughter all the time that she does in the book and she also does in that film and that was some and like the absence of that I noticed while I was watching it she talks about her second husband a lot Mr Hubbard but she doesn't ever mention her daughter and I think that was something it was missing because that is one of the clues in the book that I really liked because it could have been about anyone but when you know and then you're reading the book it hits different it makes so much more sense it does Yeah. yeah because is that's the same with the film in the nineteen seventy four? Sorry, not three. That's okay. that's okay. I only remember it because it's the year my mum was born. See, nineteen seventy three. I'm just like, oh yeah, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars came out. So <laughs> iconic here. Best but anyway, year, yeah. <laughs> everything came from that year. Now that's the difference between Except us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like some of the clues that you get in the book weren't actually portrayed. There were so many little gaps that I started to really notice things. Mm. And it's like the hardly mentioning her daughter, but then mentioning her second husband. Like, he doesn't have any relevance, really, to the plot. Yeah. Her daughter would make more sense to talk about. Yeah, I don't understand. But you just don't get that context. Especially because she's playing Mrs Hubbard as a character, so... Her character, it's her character's second husband, it isn't her second husband. Mm, that's true. Whereas she, when she's talking about her daughter, she is talking about her actual daughter who was, who died in childbirth after the death of her granddaughter. Mm. Yeah, and I think it kind of misses that sentimentality or like that, like, fragility because... Does she talk about her daughter in the 2017 one? She does. Because I don't remember her doing that. I don't know. Yeah, no, she definitely does. When I rewatched it, that was one of the things I noticed. Let me oh. see if it was a note I made. Maybe you didn't notice it because you didn't know it was important at the time that you saw it. No, because I rewatched it today. Oh, okay. Well, that blows that out the water. Because <laughs> um. I realised today what I found was one of the biggest differences is that I felt in the 2017 version, he discovers a lot of the like their relations early on in the film. So it's not like the finale is different. Mm. than it would be which I felt like was a shame which works better as a film and everything one of the things that frustrates me about the 2017 version spoilers sorry Jenny is the fact that they're caught in the snowdrift but they're caught on like a bridge which is scaffolding yeah so they're on like the side of a mountain on like a man-made bridge almost for the train line which leads to some they get off the train and like have a chase scene down the scaffolding and that was the one bit that annoyed me that's what i mean like it adds the drama to it so i get why they did it in the film but i wish they blockbuster yeah it makes sense as a modern adaptation i feel like a lot of the things they added that in which i think why the characters feel a lot more dramatized Mm. and have stronger personalities so you can see the difference between each of the characters there's so many of them they need to have very strong personalities it's almost Shakespearean in that way, yeah. like which I think makes sense with Kenneth Branagh's background. 
as like a Shakespeare actor and obviously he directed the 90s Hamlet film and Thor today and Thor <laughs> also Shakespearean yeah yeah and Cinderella the also the actors in the 27s obviously because I wasn't around in the 70s I'm sure they were all as famous then as the actors in the 2017 version are now but yeah. they I like see them and I recognize them from other things like the woman who plays the countess is in Bohemian Rhapsody the obviously which one do you, do you mean um she's Lucy the one from Wildcat Bainton is that her name Lucy oh, Bainton oh yeah yeah was she in Downton Abbey I don't know I don't think so I know her from like other teen films like chick flicks but I don't remember exactly which one yeah I definitely recognize all of the the actors I recognised all of the actors. Yeah, and then you've got Daisy Ridley, who I think is a great Mary Debenham. Yeah, she does a, she does a great job. And Leslie Odom Jr. as Colonel Arbuthnot, I think. But he's also a doctor, so he plays the role of Dr. Constantine and Colonel Arbuthnot in the film, I think, to sort of condense the amount of characters. He plays both roles yeah. as one character, which does make sense. He's, like, portrayed as a war doctor sort of thing. yeah which works and I like him they sort of add because it's almost like blind casting but they address him as a black man in the 30s a, like a British black man in the 30s that's addressed in the film which I liked that dynamic in the 2017 film oh I didn't film. remember that from the book yeah and that isn't in the book and that isn't because oh, that's, cause that's, okay, that's something that's added to the yeah. film and yeah. isn't in the 1970s yeah. film because obviously which words with all the prejudices going on in the book anyway yeah i liked that a lot and i like the variety of casting i like penelope cruz playing i think she's spanish but playing instead of being swedish miss olsen she plays the same character but as a spanish woman yeah which i quite yeah. like as well i think the changes that are made in the 2017 film make sense to me whereas the changes that are made in the 1974 film don't make sense to me in the same kind of way but maybe they would have made sense in the 70s mm. yeah perhaps yeah i it's see that me. yeah it's definitely like aged mm. it's definitely a film that mm. wouldn't work now yeah. yeah i feel but the one thing that i found very funny in is is the govern count governor yeah the count i forgot the name of the actor who plays it it's something like lloyd or something like that but he is basically the most important person in the Austin Power films. So whenever I saw him on screen, he is supposed to be like this serious cat, but I could just see him going, Austin. <laughs> and it just, something in me just, yeah. Wait, in the great one. Which is why I thought that film had such interesting casting, because I had Ingrid Bergman, who was like from the 40s. And then I had Austin Power actors. And then I had Sean Connery. Mm. Yeah. And like, yeah, Sean Connery. Yeah. What's his name? I'll get it up. The, and the actress who plays Mary Debenham is Vanessa Redgrave, who was yeah. one of the ones that I knew because I know her it's from... Michael York. I know her from Letters to Julia. Yeah. And she is also in the other... We watched another film with her. She's also in Call the Midwife. Yeah, she's in quite a few things. He plays Basil in the Austin Power films. Like, the basically like the Oh M my god, yeah. Off, yeah, off. yeah. Yeah. But he also plays Pip in the Great Expectations he does. adaptation. Yeah. Which is what I knew him from. I, I forgot about his Austin Powers thing. But that is such a dynamic range of roles. Which is because in my head they exist in different worlds. Because, like, 
Yeah. Ingrid Bergman is like black and white forties films yeah. of like Casablanca and Citizen Kane, and then she was suddenly in this, and I was like, she what? <laughs> it just didn't work in my brain, which is why I thought it was so funny. But yeah, from the trailer, what do you think of Kenneth Branagh as Poirot at the end? Like just from how you saw him visually, and because it's his voiceover, isn't it, on the trailer? Oh, I didn't know. I wasn't. I wasn't getting that. I feel like it's closer to the kind of Poirot that I want. Mm. Purely be- Okay, so my idea of who I want Poirot to be comes from the Death on the Nile adaptation in, I want to say the 60s, or maybe it was the 70s. Mm-hmm. And that's a very famous version. And I watched it randomly one day because it was on BBC iPlayer. Mm-hmm. And this was in the first lockdown. And that's the thing that really inspired me to start reading Agatha Christie properly. And yeah. that's fair. And then I obviously read this for the podcast, but I read it way back in March when I watched Death in the Nile. And that meant that I had this idea of Poirot in my head that was this guy that I saw in the film. So then when it came to the adaptation of this, I was really disappointed and annoyed that it wasn't him. Because in my head, he was the exact opposite to who I thought Poirot was. I feel like that makes sense because for me, it was so long ago watching any of the either of the films that I didn't really have him in my head as much anymore when I read the book so I could have like a new kind of like I don't know understanding of it which one did you see first Laura the 2017 one yeah me too yeah but I felt like the one I get why you guys don't like him in the 74 one but I felt like he was putting on a character to like mess with them oh that could be an interesting way to see it sorry Trey it's the rush hour yeah. on the London to Reading line. On the Rod- London Express. But yeah, I felt like he didn't annoy me as much because of that reason. Because I felt like he was putting on a character to like get that clues out of them. So they mm. would act different. Which he kind of does with some people in the books. In the like book. He's like, I act differently. And he kind of explains that to Mrs. Debenham in the 2017 one as well. How yeah. he like acts differently to different passengers. Which I feel like why it made sense in my head, but it might just be me thinking that and therefore seeing it differently. Yeah. No, I do think that as well because in in the seventy four adaptation, when he is actually talking to Miss Debenham, he just shouts at her. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, you don't get any idea of this secret conversation before that. It's just he hears it at the beginning. Nothing's ever said of it again. And then all of a sudden he's shouting at her because of the secret conversation. And there's no subtleties. Also, they kissed in that adaptation. They kiss while they're doing, like, as they have the conversation, he kisses her. And then she says, not now, after it's done, whatever the line is. Yeah. Which I, I found that, that was another thing. It was that and it was him talking to Mrs. Hubbard, implying that she's playing a role. He said, thank you for playing your part in this investigation but the way he said it had the emphasis on it that was implying that she was playing a role Uh, and that was another thing that really annoyed me which was the whole like telling and showing you rather than implying it that I wanted that I kind of expected from the 2017 version and from Knives Out because that's you're sort of figuring it out as along with the characters and with the detective. Talking about the um the fact that they kissed at the beginning, Miss Debenham. Mm. 
1974 yeah, version. Yeah, in the 1974 version. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I hadn't actually picked up on, but in the book, that whole relationship is so secretive. When they introduced the idea that they were... He was waiting to get a divorce. I couldn't work out whether that was a lie or if that was the truth because I'm pretty sure they didn't say anything about that in the book. Unless I'm just not remembering it. No, I didn't know. There was nothing about their relationship other than, like, obviously they questioned it and questioned the fact what they said. Yeah, they were like, because they're both English, I think, was mostly the... Like, they knew each other from something. Yeah, because they met on the train. But that's the same in the 2017 one. They're quite romantic in the 2017 one as well. They don't kiss, but they do talk to each other. They nearly do. They nearly do. And then she's like, don't do that. Yeah. And that also... But there's definitely also the secretive nature of it, partly because Lazy Adam Jr. obviously is a black man. And Daisy Ridley is like the whitest white person ever. So and and it's the clearly the nineteen thirties, and it's frowned upon because of that reason as well. So they're keeping it secret for two different reasons. One of which I think Poirot could have picked up on earlier, and then the other other reason being the whole ratchet and. Um, Wait, you're telling me they murdered someone? <laughs> yeah, the fact, yeah, we haven't actually said it through this whole episode. So if someone could have got to this point in the episode and not Pretty had Pretty much spoiler free. This, yeah. this is the spoiler warning. Because all of them killed Ratchet and they all have this relationship that is... They're brought together by Mrs Hubbard, who is uh, Linda Arden, the mother of Mrs Armstrong, whose baby was killed by Cassetti, who is Ratchet. Yeah, to put it clearly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was I saying? So, uh, yeah, so obviously that's the other reason for them keeping their relationship secret. But there is also, in the 2017 version, that other, di- the, like, interracial relationship dynamic that I really like that isn't in the book. And I think that comes from me seeing the film before I read the book. Yeah. But reading, and probably it yeah. being in the 30s. Yeah. And everything, yeah. And then the adaptation it- almost 100 years later. So what year was this published? Oh, I actually don't know. Nineteen twenty. No, no, it has to be thirties because otherwise we did it in the wrong month. Nineteen thirty-two. Nineteen thirty-four. Thirty-two. There we go. <laughs> Imagine we're like twenty-seven. Yeah, her... We're like shit. <laughs> her first one was twenty. <laughs> I think she married her husband in twenty-six, and I think she published this. I want to say like a year after she married mm. her second husband mm. <laughs> two years i think she went missing in 26 I... didn't she that was when she had her her funky disappearance yeah so good for her they broke up and she disappeared in 26 and then in 28 she got married again wait did she disappear out of choice or did she get like kidnapped she disappeared out of choice but she doesn't remember no it. she just yeah. oh, okay fair enough yeah oh she said she doesn't remember it okay apparently she crashed her car on the way to london and then went to get a train oh and then went to london weird Interesting. Anyone who wants to look into it and then let us know any conspiracy theories. Yeah. Please do. There's got to be a few out there, surely. Yeah. We'll have to have a look after. Yeah. We are now a conspiracy theory podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So we did the other day, Jenny, a ranking. Me and Laura did for one of our modules. We did a ranking of our books that we've read this year for the podcast which will be coming out shortly after this episode comes out yes and we ranked from 11 to 1 
the books that we've read for the podcast. Polar Express, not included. Because we haven't read it yet. And guess which of us, me or Laura, put Murder on the Orient Express as our number one favourite book that we read this year? Laura. No. No. Wow. I think it was like number three for me. I was so confident in that. There you go. It was it was my favourite book that we've read yeah. this year for the podcast. So why is it your favourite book? I think because we obviously do in this podcast look at the context that the book was written in, we look at it by decades. I think that this is the one that I enjoyed the most that also epitomises the decade that it was written in. Okay. Yeah. And I, I do see it as a very nineteen thirties book. And I really enjoyed reading it. It added to the experience of watching the film. Yeah, it did, yeah. Also, yeah. we haven't discussed it yet, but the map of the train. Oh, maps. <laughs> That's staying in. Does yours have a map? Yes, I'm sure it does. Which version do you have? I have this one. Oh, yeah. So I've got I've got a box set of three Agatha Christie novels. That, that map, the map of the carriages. Yeah, I'm which sure. We'll post on the Instagram for everyone listening. Yes, I've got it. It's very exciting. It's it is. So, it's so exciting. Every, it should be on page 76. I'm of the opinion that every good book has a map, and this is one of the most <laughs> unique maps of any book that I've read. Yeah. I talked about it on my Children's Lit module because we were talking about that. maps. I and was, I was like, this is a better map. <laughs> I can confirm I was there. It wasn't my seminar, but I was there. Yes. Nonetheless. The Martian doesn't have a map, but I forgive them because it's just Martian land. And they do talk about it. They talk about the map of Mars. Does mine not have a map in it? I think mine might have a map in it. I think my copy has a map. I'm not sure. Maybe. Do you just seek out copies of books no. just for the maps? Yeah. Yeah, that's why the... I got an entire new set of Harry Potter books. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> one of my other favourite maps in books, other than like your classic Lord of the Rings, that sort of like your, your classic fantasy map, one of my favourite maps in a book is in Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom by Lee Bardugo. And that has a great map of, it's got multiple maps, one of the fictional land with the different countries that are mentioned within the land, which all have different languages. And then on the next page, you have a zoomed in version of the city that they live in. And then on the next page, you have a map of the prison that they break into. And no one can see, but I'm doing like a chef's kiss. The hands. (laughs) My hands are giving French kisses. It's so good. It's like, a great map. Um, maybe that's something I should do in life is a ranking of fantasy maps. Sure. And also Murder in the Orient Express. Maybe I should just yeah. do a ranking of maps in books because that I think that's my niche. I feel like that would be quite interesting though. Mm, maybe that's what I should be doing my dissertation on. Yeah, change it. <laughs> <sighs> You've still got time. <laughs> no, I don't. I've already written 2,000 words, so... Yeah, maybe not. I'm, I'm a quarter of the way there. There's no point. That's true. Yeah. So I wanted to bring up the point about the jury. Yes. Because that's something I found very interesting. And it was the point, I think, in the book where I started to understand what was happening. Okay. But I, did, I didn't guess what was going on. But I started, I think, in my head, I started trying to join things together. When they were talking about, like, 12. Yeah. So when Arbuthno yeah. is like, oh, yeah, I think, like, 
trial by jury is a sound system. Yes. I was like, oh, interesting. And I think I might have looked back at the map to like see what was going on there. Because obviously yeah. every time a new character was introduced and they talked about where they were in the train, what they were doing, I'd look back at yeah. the map. and I, I, I have a post-it note on the map page. <laughs> So I could look back on it. I think I it. kept my finger there as I was reading. I yeah. Think I yeah. Had my, like my thumb yeah. in the, where the map is. Because are there 12 of them? There should yeah, be. Yeah, there are. With so him. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, if you discount Ratchet and Poirot, yeah. there are 12. Um, And also you have to discount the conductor. So yeah. technically there's 14. Including Poirot and um, the conductor, but yeah, there are twelve. Fifteen, yeah. Fifteen, yeah, yeah. If you have Ratchet, twelve plus three. Oh yeah, but Ratchet obviously doesn't really get a say in his own death. True, but he still has a number on the carriage. He does, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, w- I mean, I was either I way. I was only counting the the passengers who had a part to play in his death um which is the 12 plus what's his name pierre is that his name no it's, pierre michelle. Be, it's pierre exactly michelle. 12 people who were part of his death no you have edwin masterman but not all of there was one of them who wasn't the guy the... the guy that owns the trains yeah he's the one oh, who's not involved the the but he and the he swapped but coaches. he wasn't in the carriage, was he? No, he wasn't eventually, no. So he isn't in the map. So you've got Masterman, the Italian guy who's the... Um, Fosterelli. Fosterelli, who's the... Driver. He is, yes, yeah. Yeah. the chauffeur. Yeah. McQueen, Hildegard Schmidt, Greta Olsen, Mary Debenham, Discounting Poirot and Ratchet, Hubbard, Count and Countess Andrani, Princess Dragomirov, Colonel Arbuthnot... Hardman. Oh, yeah, and then the conductor, so that's 12. Yeah. Pierre Michel. Yes, Pierre Michel. Yes. Because that's uh, the whole, That's why they have the 12 stat wounds and stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly, then, that's the 12 on the jury, yeah. and then Poirot's the judge. Yeah. But what I found interesting about this is how they take it upon themselves to organise this trial by jury, mm-hmm. but then, in the end, after... They've been discovered. They're kind of held on trial. Yeah. And Poirot does act as the judge in this. So he's he's yeah. both the judge in the murder of Ratchet, but also in their fate. He decides whether they're guilty or not. Yeah. Even though he knows yeah. they are. Like, he knows that the second option is what happened, but he will still hold on to that first one to, like, save them. I think... He feels so strongly about the case itself because yeah. it horrif- clearly horrified him deeply to his core. You can tell that in every version. Even before this, you yeah. can tell that he, he that the case disturbed him before yeah. he had any idea of what was going to happen on the train. He seems like yeah. a man that seeks justice and obviously through his profession... He yeah. is used to helping justice come to the light. And I think, yeah. although he doesn't agree with murder, he thinks that Cassetti, Ratchet... Deserved. Yeah, he deserved what came to him because of the horrible things he did. 
or at least he he thinks they don't deserve the yeah. judgment yeah. for giving for killing him. Mm. I feel like that's more like I don't think he necessarily agrees with that he deserves to die. But he does agree with the fact that they should not be punished for doing I do think he feels it like them. it's suitable yeah. justice. I yeah. feel like he thinks that his death fulfills the sense of justice that he yeah. desires for such a horrible man. Which is interesting when we go back to the adaptations. I don't know who plays him in the 1974 version, but the guy who plays Ratchet in the 2017 version is Johnny Depp. Oh. Which is a really interesting dynamic watching it in 2020, knowing about Johnny Depp's libel trial with The Sun and Amber Heard, and the fact that everyone has their own opinion on Johnny Depp, him playing this Mm. judged character in Murder on the Orient Express, is almost... Yeah. It fits really well. Yeah, Yeah. so the way that you feel about him as an actor is the same way that you feel about him as a character. Not necessarily. If, if, you, if you condemn Johnny Depp, no, we're which not we're not really going to get into it. But I do think that's a really interesting dynamic, yeah. watching the film Definitely, now. yeah. How it's aged and, like, it fits yeah. really well. Yeah, even yeah. in the three years since it was released. Yeah. It's now... Because, obviously, he's he's gone to court as a actor, as a person, as a human being, and he's judged... Yeah. His character is judged in the book. Yeah, I think there's no other actor really in this day and age that they could have chosen that would have played the yeah. part as well and embodied the part as well w- watching it. Yeah, definitely. Another thing that's m- more just a fun fact, but I found quite interesting with the 1974 film, the director of the film, Lumaire, has only one, well, in, in my opinion, one like other big film that I at least knew, which is 12 Angry Men. I don't know that. That he directed. It's a film that takes place in one room about 12 men who got picked to be on jury. And it takes place in just that room. And it's just a discussion of whether they should, like, let the man be sentenced to death or not. Similar vibes. Yeah. And that's, like, the original film that started that tribe of, like, the trope of people in one room being sentenced and, like, talking about that. So I thought that was quite cool. It's yeah. A... Yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept, especially for Christie to have written. Mm. Yeah. I like that murder mysteries centre around this idea of moral and justice being served and that you are controlled by your own moral compass. Yeah. And I just... It's in a another work that she did. What's it called? I've got it here. In, and then there were none. Mm. So it's that focuses on twelve people. Maybe she just Hopefully. likes the number twelve. Oh, it's ten. That's sad. sad. <laughs> ten people going to this island off of Devon, and they basically all spoiler alert, they all end up dying. And this was a massive release on the BBC a few years back, and I watched it. Mm-hmm. I didn't realise it was Agatha Christie. Until I picked up the book and I thought, I know this. I'm sure I know this plot. I've seen this before. And the ending, the final guy kills himself. Oh. I think, from what I remember. I haven't finished it yet. Yeah. But because of the guilt that he feels. Because they all basically... One person is murdered. And then they all get murdered. And they're all trying to figure out who the murderer is. Because it can only be someone that's 
on this one house on this island. Because the island is deserted other than this one house. Yeah. Um, And then this, like, guilt basically comes over the person that is left at the very end because they're the only person on the island. Because he killed someone else, from what I remember, because he thought they were going to murder him. So he killed them and then he killed himself because he was like, I don't want the police to find me. I don't want to basically live with this for the whole of my life. So again, it's like that moral compass and that They were all the murderers, kind of. Yeah. And that's kind of relevant here as well. Like, they all have a part in the murder. Mm. It's not the murder of multiple people, but it's... They are... It also makes them not guilty, all of them. Yeah. They're all justifying their own action through their morals. Because they think this is right. None of them would have to feel with the like live with the consequence of having murdered someone because none of them really did apart from the guy that poisoned him yeah but that i think because it was a collective decision he was just the person that had access and i think that was just sleeping yeah it It wasn't yeah Yeah. he was he was drugged so he didn't shout out or move Yeah. yeah so they don't know who actually killed him yeah see that's interesting though because in the 1974 version it's implied that the poison or the powder that they put into the sleeping draft is the thing that kills him because he starts going like, oh, oh, you know, and having chest pain. But I think that's just him going to sleep, like just being knocked out. It might just be a stronger dose. Because earlier, when the colonel's wife is being... Oh, Count and Draney. Countess and Draney. When Countess and Draney is saying that she takes sleeping draft they mention that it's in a powdered form. And if it's taken in high doses, it can be toxic. Which I think is mentioned in the book. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. But then, it's to me anyway, it was implied that the powder that they were putting in what was already a sleeping draft was like a double dose of another sleeping draft, which was like an overdose altogether. And that's what killed him, or at least poisoned him enough to knock him out so no one actually had to kill him through their stabbing. Oh. I, I see what you mean, but I also think that he was drugged to unconsciousness to the point that him being stabbed wouldn't have woken him up. Mm. So I think that the sleeping draft itself, whether it was a poison or not, didn't kill him. One of their stab wounds actually did the job, but they yeah. don't know who's because they all went and stabbed blindly in the dark and... Um, as to not be guilty yeah so they in themselves don't have the guilt of killing him they just have the guilt of stabbing him and possibly contributing to his murder but I don't think that any of them actually killed him which I think is part of the whole thing where they can't verify the time of death because they can't verify which of the stab wounds killed him Yeah, and it also makes sense with the trial because if they are the jury none of them would be by themselves in Killing, mm-hmm. like, deciding someone was sentenced to death. Yeah. No one would have to bear that guilt. I think at the end, I felt oh. guilty for agreeing that they should actually say it was someone that came onto the train and then left. I felt guilty for saying that these 12 people could go free, even though I also felt like they shouldn't be charged. Yeah. So it was like, that was put onto the audience then, rather than just the people in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't sure who I was rooting for. 
Yeah. And I feel like that, but that's, I feel like that's really good. Like in the book. Yeah. I like how they did that. No one is like either good or bad. Yeah. You agree. I feel like Christy's kind of making us question our own thoughts about, I guess, justice. Yeah. And what we see as being justice or being just. One of the other points I wanted to make, ironically, now that we're at the end of the recording, is about the start of the films and of the book. So Very different. Yeah. I found it really interesting. Let me just go back to the very start of the book. Yeah, so he starts the book in Aleppo in Syria, where he's solving a case. In the 2017 version, he's solving a different case in Jerusalem. And in the 1974 film... He, it starts with the Armstrong house in 1930. Yes. And I thought it was really interesting that each of the three adaptations, the book, the older film and the newer film that we've watched, have started in completely different locations. While I kind of understand starting it at the Armstrong house, it's another case of the whole showing and telling instead of implying that of the 1974 version that I'm not a big fan of. What it was really intrigued by was the fact that the book starts in Syria and the 2017 film starts in Jerusalem and I want to know why they chose to change it from Aleppo to Jerusalem maybe it was too controversial in 2017 to film in Syria probably I think it's a context thing yeah or to like start it in Syria but then surely Jerusalem being Israel is a similarly controversial place to start a film especially because it's the 1930s it's set in the 1930s it's not set in 2017 true that might just be easier to film and like location wise that was just i just had that probably a budget thing yeah maybe though that i mean that you wouldn't have to be in syria to say you were in syria exactly like you could just be you could be in a studio that is made to look like 1930s but i think they picked jerusalem because it is bigger on the screen, it's dramatic with the the wall. Yeah. That's like recognizable. And I feel like more people would recognise that than they would recognise. I do really Syria. like that scene. When you see it, Jenny, in that in the twenty seventeen film, the start the opening scene in Syria with the joke which goes the rabbi, the priest and the imam and he goes, It's the start of a joke. Forgive me, I'm Belgian <laughs> sort of thing. And I think it works really well and I think it kind of shows Kenneth Branagh's sense of humour and it presents his portrayal of Poirot really well. But I did, while I was watching it, I did have that question of why it wasn't starting the same way that the yeah. book did, which I couldn't quite explain to myself why they decided to change that. Yeah, if anyone listening has any answers, please let us know. I think it is just with the adaptation, just to dramatise it and make it recognisable for like a modern, yeah, modern audience, audience, which I feel like they did quite some changes with that, with like mm. just adapting it to fit. Oh no, I lost to Jenny. Ah, I fell. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Should we wrap up then? I think, yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say? No, that's pretty much the thoughts on the book. I am going to go and watch the 2017 film now though, because yeah. I just let us know. I love this plotline so so much. I think it is so yeah, clever. Yeah, it's really so good. well executed in how it's written, and I cannot wait to read all sixty six of Agatha Christie's novels. Yeah, <laughs> one of the things I did want to say, which was inspired by something that Jenny said earlier, was that I think these 
Agatha Christie books, the fact that we as an audience get to decide who is guilty, in a sense, for a lot of them, they kind of then bridge that gap between Sherlock Holmes, which I think is maybe even more straightforward. You know who's guilty, you know who's innocent. And the Knives Out plot, which is even more convoluted in that you don't really know who is guilty and who is innocent. It's throughout and there's the your perspective on what's happening changes as you're watching it. So I think this is definitely fitting of the time as that sort of middle point between late Victorian, early Edwardian, Arthur Conan Doyle, and then modern day Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. I think that is partially to do with the difference between being told the ending Mm. and being offered multiple endings. So it's, I think she leaves it open to interpretation, of course, but she doesn't present the characters as some being good, some being bad. She doesn't leave Mm. space for you to really dislike any of the characters. They're all in that grey area. Yeah, whereas in Sherlock Holmes or in Knives Out, at the end, there are characters you hate because of the things that they've done. Yeah. But in this, especially, I mean, we can't talk about all of Chrissy's works, I'm sure, but in this specifically, there isn't anyone that you strongly dislike that is left alive. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Ratchet's already dead, so you know that you dislike him because of all the other things he made happen. But the rest of them, you can never justifiably dislike them because of that moral decision that Christy leaves us with. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. And I think that's maybe to do with the audience's exposure to murder mystery and this sort of genre, this sort of trope from the early 1900s, late 1800s to where we are now in 2020. And we have this whole exposure. We know Sherlock Holmes as 20-somethings in the 2020. We know Agatha Christie, we know Poirot, and we want something different, which Ryan Johnson saw and fulfilled in Knives Out without disrespecting what had come before, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It drew on different aspects of this murder mystery trope. Yeah. Rather than saying, oh, this has been done before, but it wasn't done well, I'm going to make it better. It was very respectful of its decisions. Yeah, which yeah. It also happened with the, ni- with the 2017 adaptation of this book. I think that's why the changes were made. I'll let you know cool. how I find it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do. Let us know. And if anyone hasn't watched Murder on the... Hasn't read the book of Murder on the Orient Express, but has seen the films, let us know what you think. And we're just big fans of Knives Out. So if you haven't yeah. seen that, everyone should watch that. They should. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's my hot take. It's not really a hot take. It's, it's just, just an take. opinion. <laughs> it's a take. It's quite a common take, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry I've had Prosecco. <laughs> I'm one and a half bottles of wine in at this point. You're and holding you're up really well. To me. I've Thank only you. had two glasses of Prosecco and I'm like, we. To be honest though, it is mulled wine. So I feel like some of the alcohol uh, okay, is burnt yeah. off a little. So yeah. it doesn't affect as bad. Might as well the blog anything you want, really. Well, we, we talked about your Instagram. But... Yeah, so if 
if you're vegan, if you're not vegan, if you just like vegetables, which if you like they're food. healthy for you. If you like food, I have a... If you have ever in your life taken a bite. <laughs> if you have ever eaten any food ever. <laughs> if you enjoy eating, if you enjoy cooking, if you enjoy treating your friends, yeah. follow my Instagram, which is at peaches and greens. I also have a TikTok and there is also a blog coming soon, which I'm not going to give the exact date of. But if you follow my Instagram, then you will soon find out. I'm excited. Because I've started writing all the recipes down now and formatting things and it's very exciting. Nice. But yeah, Yeah. that was this month's episode. That was the third. That was the last normal episode of the year. (gasps) Oh my gosh. Yeah. What an honour. Yeah, there we go. And everyone listening should, if you don't already, follow us on Instagram and listen to us. We're now on Spotify. We haven't said this (gasps) on a um, recording yet. We're on Spotify. And we're also on iTunes, Acast, Google Play, wherever Google Play podcasts are available. We don't know. And thank you, Jenny, for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a lovely time. It's a pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Cool. So as every detective said... As they stabbed Ratchet, who's actually Cassetti. As every character on the train in the Orient Express said. To Ratchet. (laughs) As they stabbed him through the chest. Oh my god. Goodbye. See see you in the past. past.